Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. In your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. We are now at the conclusion of today's study, basically halfway through the book of Mark, which has been good and valuable and helpful, I, I hope, um, for you as well. So good just to sit and look at Jesus, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great to be able to to kind of pull up a seat uh, on a a hillside there and watch him do the things that he did. Uh, And we kind of have that opportunity as we dig into the Gospels uh, to watch the way that he interacted with people, the way that he loved people, the way that he ministered to people and challenged people, uh, and all those things that we have been considering. And this morning, we have another one of the, we begin with another one of those instances where Jesus, and you see his sweetness, his gentleness, the the individual way that he works with someone. It's just really good to look at uh, and certainly begin to apply or attempt to apply to our lives as well. So when we were last together, we saw Jesus warn his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaven of Herod, those influences that can make their way into a person's life and and you don't really notice them. It's a small little thing. It's no big deal and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden you see that it has permeated your entire life. And your thinking has changed, and the way you respond to things has changed. Jesus warned his disciples about that. And he did so while he was on a boat crossing back over the Sea of Galilee. Well, this morning we pick up with where they land on the Sea of Galilee. Look at verse 22. We're about halfway now through Mark chapter 8. And it says, Now they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, Bethsaida is a place that the disciples had been at before. We know later on in their lives that uh, Peter and Andrew were living in Capernaum. Well, they grew up in the city or the town, I guess is a better term, of Bethsaida. It's a small little village located on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Peter and Andrew were from, those brothers. Uh, The Apostle Philip is from there as well. We're told that he is from Bethsaida. And we learn, I think this is significant for us, we learn from Luke's account of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, that that took place in Bethsaida. You can see it there in Luke chapter 9, where it speaks of the location of that miracle. And so the disciples and Jesus have been to Bethsaida a number of different times and on a number of different instances. And the people there have had the opportunity to observe Jesus who he is, what he can do, the miraculous power that he had. And remember, the feeding of the 5,000, he taught them all day. And so they got to hear him teach and learn the things that he was conveying to his audience there. And so they saw these things. And so now Jesus comes back to that area of Bethsaida, and it says some people brought to him a blind man, and they began to beg Jesus to touch him. Let's read the full account, picking up in verse 23. And so Jesus took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Interesting account, isn't it? And I, as I read it, there's a, it's only found in the book of Mark, by the way. And so we, we don't read Matthew or Luke or John to, to get some further insights. For whatever reason, Mark is the only one who felt, you know what, we've got to get that down on paper. 
And so Mark tells us this story. And as I read these six or so verses here, there's a number of unanswered questions that I have. Some of them are this. Number one, why does Jesus lead the man, lead the man out of town before healing him? Why not just do it right there? And yet he says, come with me, leads a man out of town. Secondly, why doesn't he just touch the man as he did in other occasions, except in this instance, he brings him out, he spits on his eyes, he touches him, which raises another question. Why spit on the man's eyes? That seems peculiar and odd and kind of mean and gross even. And then lastly, why is the man initially only partially healed? Why, why is this healing in stages? That's not something we typically see or have seen in our study of the gospel. So there's a whole lot of questions. Maybe you have some additional questions that you're asking after reading that passage. What we don't have in the Bible are answers really to those questions. And so we can sort of look at it. We can put things into context. We can look and see how Jesus deals in other instances. And we can come up with some of our best guesses but we don't have definitive answers as to why he spit on the man's eyes, why he took him out of the city in this particular instance, why he's partially healed initially and not fully healed, as we've seen him do in other occasions here. A bunch of questions that are asked of us, and I wanted to look at some of them real quickly. Number one, again, why does he lead the man out of the village, as it says there in verse 23? Once again, there's no direct answer, and so the best we're doing here is coming up with reasonable conclusions I think one of the contributions to a reasonable conclusion is this, is that the last time Jesus was in Bethsaida, as far as we know, recorded in the Gospels, the last time that Jesus was there was when he fed the 5,000. And that is recorded in a number of different Gospels. And so we can look at the different Gospels there to get some insight into that event. John tells us an interesting thing. It said this, so they said to him, this is the next day, people have been fed. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? As opposed to the one I did yesterday, where I fed, you know, 10,000 of you here. He, they said, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know, so what sign are you going to do, Jesus? And in response, Jesus then begins to teach them that the true bread that they need is not a physical bread that they could eat and be satisfied temporarily with, but he goes on and he tells them, the true bread you need is me. And he says there, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's the bread you need to eat. Now, some of you are like, yeah, that makes sense. Imagine hearing that for the first time. What? What are you talking about? No, I don't, I don't want to eat your flesh. I don't even know what that means. I want real bread. Give me real bread and I will be satisfied with that. Jesus goes in and says, I am the living bread. And then he says in verse 53 of John 6, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now you can go back and you can read the rest of John chapter 6, but notice here, here's the response in verse 56 of that chapter, actually verse 66 of that chapter, which is an interesting uh, address, John 6:66. Notice what it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They weren't interested in that. Just enough with the teach. just give me food, just give us bread, just give us the supplies that we need. They weren't interested in his teaching they wanted what their forefathers had thousands of years earlier when Moses, essentially Moses, gave them manna. And if you can't give us something like that, you can't match up to something like that, well, then we're not really interested in continuing to follow you. Well, that's the people of Bethsaida. 
And so perhaps, to some degree, an argument I think could be made that one of the reasons why Jesus brings this man outside of the city is because of the attitude of the people in that particular village who would rather have signs than teaching, would rather have miracles than Jesus' redemptive work in their particular lives. And so rather than getting into all of that, getting into all the signs that they're demanding of him, Jesus just takes the man outside of the city, perhaps. Maybe it's just simply to show the guy a little bit of privacy and respect. Maybe the guy here with the blindness and all of that, maybe Jesus says, you know what, we don't need to do this in front of everyone. Let's just get aside. Just you and I will talk. And so in consideration for the special needs that this blind man has, Jesus pulls him aside and he ministers to him. Perhaps, again, we don't necessarily know, but one thing I do notice is it's interesting to take note of the contradiction of the way in which Jesus healed people as we compare that with some of our modern-day healing ministries, because our modern-day healing ministries don't do healings in private, typically. Rather, they call a big crowd together so everyone can see, and then the miracles take place. Jesus, yet, he pulls them aside, and that's where he ministers to this guy in privacy, away from the frenzied atmosphere of the crowds and what Jesus can do and what Jesus is about to do. That's where Jesus ministers to this man. So who knows the exact reason? Maybe it's one of those two or something different. The next question that I ask is, why does Jesus spit in the man's eyes? Again, that seems gross and kind of mean to do to a blind person who doesn't know what's about to come at them to spit in the person's eyes. Well, I think we would all give Jesus the benefit of the doubt that he's not being gross and he's not being mean. Is that a fair assumption? All right, so there's probably another reason here. Jesus heals three different blind individuals. Sometimes we think Jesus healed lots of blind people in the, the gospel. Um, I did as I was reading this, but as you go back and you look, he only healed three different blind people. Now, it's told multiple times in, in many gospels, so it feels like a whole lot more. But there's three instances where he heals people that are blind. One, in John 9, we read that he heals a man that was born blind. And you may recall that's the story where the people came and they said, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he is punished with this blindness. And Jesus responds, neither, but that God's glory might uh, be shown. And he heals the man in that particular instance. There's another instance where you have a fellow whose name we know, which means he probably went on to be a follower of Christ and a well-known follower. His name is Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus was a beggar in the town of Jericho, and Jesus was passing through Jericho to make his way to Jerusalem. And the man was crying out, calling out, yelling out, and Jesus goes over, and everyone else is like, be quiet. And Jesus goes over and he heals the man. And then the third blind fella is the guy that we have today. Turn to your neighbor and say, I didn't know there were three people. <laughs> there, good. Now, here's what's interesting. In two of those three cases, saliva is involved. Spit is involved in two of those three cases. Now, one thing that we take away from that uh, is... It's not involved in all three cases. So it's not the spit that does the healing. Jesus is the one that does the healing. The second thing we notice is in one case, Jesus spits on the man. In another case, he spits down into the dirt, makes mud, and puts that on the man. So there's different ways that he is healing each of these individuals, even though two of the cases involve his spit, actually. And so again, the question is, why use the spit at all? Well, again, the Bible doesn't tell us. And the answer could just be as simple as this. Sometimes we read into things 
And well, Jesus was holy, and therefore the spit flowing through him was holy, and the holy spit touched his. It's not that. Or you don't have to get all kind of weird with things like this. It could quite literally simply be this, that without use of his eyes, the man didn't open them very much, and they crusted shut, and Jesus needed some water to open them up. It could be as simple as that. He still heals the man, and yet the spit aspect of things is not some weird supernatural thing or some crazy supernatural thing. I'm sure some of you have cleaned dirt off your kid's face with a little spit on your thumb. My mom, oh, <laughs> I was like 14, and my mom is still doing that to me, or whatever. And so some of you have probably done that. And so maybe it, it has something to do with something like that. Jesus takes the guy out of the town. He ministers to him. Now, the next thing that we have here is partial healing. This is the only time in the accounts of Jesus' healings where a guy is not like, or gal is not healed like right away, instantly, once Jesus says the word or applies the touch or whatever it may be. And so here you have a fellow sort of healed in stages. Verse 23 says, he took the blind man by the hand, he led him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they looked like trees that are walking. Again, the only time that we see it in stages. He touches them the first time, the man is partially healed, he touches him a second time, and he is then able to see clearly. And so instead of the blurred objects, this idea of men look like trees walking, the blurred objects that are out there, instead of that, the man is now able to see things clearly. And again, with this question, we don't know exactly what is going on here. Again, maybe the man needed to have a second wiping away of his eyes, as you've probably done when you wake up. And your eyes are kind of sealed shut a little bit, and you wipe them, and you can sort of see the clock in the distance, but not exactly. And then you wipe them again, and suddenly now you can see clearly. Maybe it's something like that. But here's what we learn. Not every single instance of healing is the same in Scripture. And so we can't pigeonhole God and the way that God is going to do what God is going to do. We can't say, this is how it happened here, and so this is how you replicate it in our day, and things like that. You can give it a shot if you want to try that. I think it's perfectly okay to say, little girl, get up and see if that works. That's what Jesus did. That's what the disciples did in the book of Acts. But not every single instance of healing in Scripture is exactly the same. Second application with this little account here of the guy partially seeing, that sure sounds like the way a lot of people come to Jesus, isn't it? Now, some of you I know, I've heard your stories, that you were at some event, the preacher was preaching, a Greg Laurie event, Billy Graham event, that kind of thing, and all of a sudden you knew. And the tears began to flow, and you ran up to the front, and you got saved, and you were saved on that particular day. That's some of your stories. My story is a little different. My story, a friend, my wife now, a girlfriend at the time, invited me to a Bible study, and I began to listen. And as I listened, I, I would drive home, and I would think. And as I would lay in my bed, I would think more about these things, and I would go back to the Bible study and learn some more stuff. And somewhere along the way, I came to know Jesus. And it was this gradual thing that began to happen in my life. I bring it up right now because that's okay. Sometimes we think, you know, you need to make a decision right now. And we pester a person. And they finally say, sure, I believe. Will you leave me alone? And, you know, they're not real interested in it. Or they get mad at you and say, you know what, just leave me alone. All you care about is my scalp, as people talk about. Another notch on your belt that you saved another person. And so I think it's okay to let people have their space. 
to understand these things, to look into these things, to consider these things, to keep checking back in with them, answering questions that they may have, and over the time and in the process of things, they come to know the Lord. Certainly you've got to follow the Lord because there are times the Lord will say, put them on the spot. Right now, put them on the spot to respond to what it is they heard. And then there are other times the Lord will say, you know, you need to stop talking. It's just pull back and let me do what I'm going to do now. And the Lord does that. And he works in both of those instances. Amen? Would you agree? Okay, I agree. Good. That's why I said it. All right? But just keep on ministering to people. Well, as we see in verse 26, the man is healed. Jesus, notice he sends him on his way. But notice this interesting thing. He says to the man, avoid the village altogether. Don't even go to the village. Maybe the man lived on the outskirts of the village. But Jesus came to the coast, and so they brought this man right there to sort of that center of town, which is what the coast would have been, even though geographically it wouldn't have been in the center of town. And so he just says to him, you know, just go back to your home and enjoy the gift of your sight, he says to him. And so that's what the man is going to go on to do, we no doubt. Verse 27 goes on. Now Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And some said, well, Elijah, and other, or John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And Jesus then asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, of course he did, he always does. He answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Well, as I read there in verse 27, that verse seems to me to make it evident that Jesus had no real intention to stay in Bethsaida, that he was actually passing through Bethsaida where he really wanted to go was Caesarea Philippi. We have a couple of maps. I'm going to show you the first one here that you can look at. You see that little blue dot right in the center there? That, that's the Sea of Galilee, 13 miles in length, about 8 miles from left to right. And, and the northern shore there of the Sea of Galilee circled, that's Bethsaida. I know you can't read it, but you can see at least where the circle is. A relatively small fishing village. It was a, what we would today call a blue-collar little town. And Jesus had been there a number of different instances. Uh, we know that Peter and Andrew, they moved to Capernaum. which So if Bethsaida is about 1230 or so on the clock, Capernaum's the one listed about 11 over there on the clock. That was a bigger town. And they had their own fishing business, and so maybe they moved to a bigger town to have more business. Whatever it may be, that's where Bethsaida is. Now, if you follow that blue little river that goes up there, and it leads to the next body of water, that's the Jordan River. And up above that next body of water, we have it circled on the next map, I think. Yeah, that's Caesarea Philippi. And along that little river bank, that was a common passageway. And so if you were going to make your way to Caesarea Philippi, you were likely going to go through Bethsaida, follow that riverbank, and go about 25 miles or so north up to Caesarea Philippi. All of this walking, by the way. They were going to make their way up to that particular region. So it seems to me Jesus is really just passing through Bethsaida when he comes into contact with this uh, particular man. Now, Caesarea Philippi is not a Jewish city. All right, Bethsaida is. But making their way up to Caesarea Philippi, they're outside of the region of the Jewish people, and they've entered into a Gentile region, much like the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis that we've been looking at, those 10 Gentile cities, were much closer to the Jewish cities, villages. 
So a lot of interaction was going on between Jews and Gentiles in those places, particularly commerce and things like that. Caesarea Philippi is a hike. If you want to go to Caesarea Philippi, you're making plans to go to Caesarea Philippi. When we go to Israel, it's a hike. We take a bus to get there, but we plan. We're going to spend a half a day traveling to and staying at Caesarea Philippi. It's pretty far away. And so this was a Gentile area there today. It is located in what we refer to, you know the name, the Golan Heights. You heard of the Golan Heights? That area up there is part of the Golan Heights. Uh, and might, I'm not exactly sure of this. No, it's not. I know it's not. It's still part of Israel today, but it's approaching the borders of Lebanon and the borders of Syria. Uh, and as I said, we do go there when we make our trip over to Israel. What you should know about Caesarea Philippi, it's, a, it's an odd place for Jesus and the disciples to go because Caesarea Philippi served as the center of worship for a number of different religions throughout history, including the times of Jesus. And at the times of Jesus, it was the Greek god Pan, P-A-N. Uh, and so another name for Caesarea Philippi is Paneas, P-A-N-I-A-S. Um, named after that particular God. This was the center of worship for this particular place. And it was a very dark place, particularly for a Jew, to go and observe the things that were happening. Uh, I showed you, I didn't show a picture, I've described it in the past. Their God, Pan, the Greek God Pan, uh, they believed lived in this cave where there was flowing water that came out of it, and he required a sacrifice uh, which was usually a goat that was thrown into this cave, and the waters were real rough at the bottom of that particular cave, but the waters also flowed out from that cave into a stream. And if uh, blood showed up in the waters, then the gods were satisfied with their offering. If the blood of the goat that they threw in there didn't show up, then the gods were not satisfied, and they had to go back to the drawing board. And the drawing board was to worship their god with all sorts of sensual acts and, and so on. Uh, the depiction of their god was the upper body of a goat, the lower body of a, of a male, uh, fully exposed and all these kinds of things. And so uh, it was a pretty dark religion. And the people would go nuts, uh, I say that, uh, dancing around trying to appease this god. And so for Jesus and these disciples to kind of come up on the edge of this and to observe this would have been quite a peculiar circumstance for them certainly to be in. Uh, Making sense? You, the background of that here? And so I, I bring all of this up because Jesus is really trying to get away, if you will, from the norm of things. And he's taking his disciples 25 miles away up into this particular region. And it says along the way there, uh, as you read, I think it's in Matthew, it, it begins to explain that as they were coming into the town, Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? He says, who do people say that I am? And that manner of walking with his disciples, talking with his disciples, I couldn't help but think of what uh, Moses in was instructed by God to instruct the people of Israel to do, the Jewish men, the women, the families, to do with their children. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read this. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk to them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, the idea there is you don't have to wait to Sunday morning Sunday school to teach your kids about the things of the Lord or for them to learn the things of the Lord. You don't have to wait until it's official devotion time. Now we're going to talk about God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 there, what it tells us is where you go, 
where you lie down, where you walk, where you uh, sit down, and all of those ideas. Use those as opportunities. And so parents, as you're doing that with your children, you should be doing that with your children, I should say. And so as you go a particular place and something strikes your mind and you apply that to your walk with the Lord, explain that to your kids so that your kids can learn how it is you process your walk with Christ in the day-to-day. That's what it seems to me Jesus is doing here. He's walking with the disciples. He comes into the town. Perhaps he sees this worship that is taking place or all of the statues and idols that are all about. One way or another, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, gentlemen, who do people say that I am? Now, it almost sounds like Jesus is fishing for a compliment. You know, what do people say about me? You know, what are the Google reports that people are looking up me uh, and things like that? I, I certainly don't think that's what Jesus is doing. And part of the reason I don't think that is because a little bit later on he's going to say, and what about you? You see, I think Jesus is priming the pump initially when he asks that question. He, he wants the disciples to think, what are other people saying? And then say, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? Well, we'll look at that as we get a little further down. The disciples, they begin to respond. Some say, well, they say that you're John the Baptist. Now, we saw examples of that. Remember, Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead because Herod had John the Baptist killed. And so he had sort of this guilty conscience and things like that. And so we have that instance, people saying that he was John the Baptist resurrected. They, the disciples also point out, they say, well, some, of, some people say or think that you're Elijah. Now, that's probably a reference to the Old Testament prophecy of Malachi. Because in the Old Testament prophecy of Malachi, we have this prediction, this prophecy, that before the Messiah comes, that Elijah will come. Now, remember, Elijah never died, but he was taken in the chariot of fire. We read the story, I believe it's in either 1 Kings or 2 Kings. And so there's this concept, this idea that before the coming of the Messiah, that Elijah will once again, let me read it to you. It says, behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And I'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. And so the Jewish people who were looking for a Messiah were also looking for Elijah that were come. And now some were saying that they thought this Jesus was Elijah. Now, of course, with New Testament understanding, Christians, it's a lot easy, it's pretty easy for us to look back and say, that's not talking about Elijah at the first coming. It's also talking about Elijah at the second coming. Everybody knows that, right? Do you know that? Maybe you don't know that, but we can look with our eyes and say, oh, those silly Jews, they didn't know, they didn't understand. But believe me, if you were there, you wouldn't have understood either, right? Because you didn't have the insight that we have by looking back. This whole idea of the church age, that there's this 2,000-year period of time uh, between the coming of the first, uh, the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, that whole church age, Paul calls it a mystery. Paul didn't even initially know it until he came to understand these things. Most people thought that the Messiah would come and he would reign over the world. And so again, as that uh, Malachi passage there, it speaks of this idea of utter destruction That's what most people associated with the coming of the Messiah. He's going to throw off the Romans, destroy his enemies, and the Jewish people, they will finally come to their zenith uh, that they only began to experience under the reign of David and under the reign of Solomon. Well, again, in hindsight, we can look back and we can see, no, there's a first coming 
where Jesus will, where the Messiah will come as a suffering servant. And then there's the second coming where he will come as a conquering king. The Jewish people even began to believe sort of kind of by default. Like, I think if you sat down and you asked them in first century, do you believe this? They would have said, well, no, not really. But it began to work itself out in their teaching. Almost it seemed they believed that there were two messiahs. There was a messiah that was going to come that would suffer in some way. And then there was a messiah that would come and there would reign. And we look back and we say, no, it's not two messiahs, it's two comings. There's the suffering servant Jesus who would give his life on behalf of the sheep. And then there's the reigning king that we read about setting up his throne, as we read about in the book of Revelation and in other places there. And so, as we said, some said John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets of old, or as it says in some versions, like the prophets of old, not that he's Jeremiah or Isaiah or something like that, but that he's like the prophets of old that have come. So what's interesting is that people don't really know who he is, right? They're, they're, they're kind of all over the place, but they know that he's somebody. They know that Jesus is a man of significance. And so when, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? They're not answering, well, they think you're a kook, or the people think you're a carpenter's son from Nazareth. They know that he's someone of significance. John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah, one of the prophets of old that they had such respect and they revered in this particular time. So now Jesus takes that question, who do people say that I am, and he turns it now on the disciples. And he says, and what about you? These are my words. And how about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter will go on to answer the question. Jesus takes the initial question, which is sort of a safe question. It's just what other people say. It's not what I'm saying here. And then he focuses it on the people and on his disciples. And notice as it says there, Peter says, you are the Christ. Matthew has this passage. Matthew tells us that he adds the words, you are the son of the living God. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's very different from being Elijah and being a prophet. He's not the forerunner of the Christ. Peter is saying, you are the Christ. This is quite a statement on Peter's part here. Now, remember the context of where we are. We are getting closer and closer and closer to the final days of Jesus' life on the earth. Would you flip over, it's three pages in my Bible, to chapter 11 of Mark? Scroll over there if you're using, you know, phone or something. If you have a heading in your Bible, what's it say? Go ahead and yell it out. The triumphant entry, the triumphal entry, something to that effect. That's what we call Palm Sunday. Okay, so that's three chapters away. We're getting closer and closer to the final days of Jesus' life here. And Jesus poses this question. Some have said this is the high point of Jesus' disciples of these 12 men. That everything they've been doing for the last three years, we're probably, we're less than six months away from his crucifixion. That everything they've been doing for the last three years was building to this particular point, and everything that happens after this particular point is the, res- or is the purpose of Jesus' ministry. It's the high point. It's the zenith. And it's very nice, and it's noble, that the people of the society think Jesus is somebody, that he's someone significant. But Jesus is not satisfied with that. And so the people, they have a great deal of respect for the Lord. They call him John the Baptist. People respected John the Baptist. Elijah, imagine. 
one of the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament, or even any of the prophets of the Old Testament. And so to say that Jesus is one of those individuals, that's a very respectful opinion on their part. But Jesus did not come to be one of the great prophets of old. And so it's not a satisfactory uh, opinion on their part. That was not what Jesus came to be. Jesus didn't come just to be respected by people or for people to think good things about him. Jesus declared himself to be equal with God. And the Jewish leaders were keenly aware of this claim. And you remember, they were furious at him for making that claim. John chapter 5 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. is because Jesus claimed that he was God. In another place, Jesus declared that he and the Father were one. John chapter 10. And notice the response of the people in that particular passage. Verse 31 of that chapter says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus said, why do you stone me? What are you picking up? What good work are you stoning me for? And he says, not because of a good work. It says, it's because you declared yourself to be equal with God. Make yourself God. Now, as you go all the way to today, even today, there are very few people that don't have an opinion of who Jesus is. I mean, you ask around. You go anywhere you want, and you just talk, and you say, hey, have you heard of Jesus? Sure. Right, maybe you go to some foreign village or something where the gospel hasn't been brought uh, in a long time. But around our nation in particular, you go somewhere, you ask people of who Jesus is. People have heard of him. And the majority of people are going to say, you know, he seemed like a good dude or something like that. They may not like you. His disciples, they get it all wrong. But Jesus was a nice guy or, or something like that. Or he was a great teacher they might say, or they might say he was a great prophet or something. People have an opinion of Jesus, and it's usually a positive opinion of Jesus. But that was not an option Jesus left for the people, just to think some nice thoughts about him. C.S. Lewis, you're familiar, I'm, I suspect many of you are, writer in the 1950s or so, English writer, Christian. And C.S. Lewis is the one who sort of pointed out that Jesus is either a liar, he's a crazy man, a lunatic, or he is who he said he is, and that is Lord. But a prophet is not an option because Jesus declared himself to be more than a prophet. And so he was either lying about that or he was just off his rocker. He was crazy, and well, that poor fellow, he thinks he's a prophet. All right, so he's either a liar, he's a crazy man, a lunatic, or he is who he says that he is. He is Lord. And those are the only options that Jesus left for the opinion of, that people could form of him. And so the same question that Jesus asked of those disciples, you should be asking your question, that same question to yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? In this moment of training of his disciples, as I said, this is the peak of their training. This is what Jesus was bringing them to. Who do you say that I am? Am I a prophet? Well, if I'm a prophet, I'll come, I'll say some nice things, and then I'll be on my way into history. Am I a crazy man? Well, you know, just take the best care of me as you can, and then I'll die, and you can kind of go on with your lives. But if I'm Lord, it changes everything. It changes everything. I was reminded today as I was considering this of that story where I think it's Elijah the prophet encounters uh, the 850 prophets of Baal uh, and uh, of Asherah. You know that story there in 1 Kings, I think it is 18. And in that passage, uh, Elijah stands up. I think it's Elijah, right? He stands up uh, in front of all the people, the Jewish people, who had been worshiping these false gods. And he says to them, 
if the Lord is God, serve him. And if he's not God, then go on and do whatever you want to do. But stop this in-between two different worlds. And so that question, who do people say that I am, it's a very important question for you to ask yourself and for me to be asking myself again and again and again and again in my walk with the Lord. Who do you say that I am? Because Jesus, if Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, God's Messiah, God himself in the flesh, if he is indeed the Savior of the world, doesn't that change everything in our lives? Friends, doesn't that change, shouldn't that change everything in our lives? Our lives should be completely and radically different because of that reality. Who do you say that I am? Jesus poses the question. Now, it's interesting. Look at verse 30. We're almost done here. But it goes on from there. And Jesus then strictly charges them. So Peter says, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. I imagine, it doesn't say this, but I imagine the other disciples are like, that's right. I, I suspect there was sort of this quiet time for a second. Everyone sort of looks at Peter. And Peter's like, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And they all nod their head vigorously. And now notice it goes on and it says that Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one about him. Isn't that ironic? Again, if it's all building up to this, shouldn't he be saying something like, now go tell the world? Now he will say that a little bit later on. We read that in Matthew chapter 28, and we read about it in Mark chapter 16, where at the end of things, Jesus said, now go into all the world and preach this gospel to all creation. And so later on, Jesus will tell them that. But here it says that he strictly charges them not to tell anyone. I don't like to add words in my Bible, but I think this is an instance where it's okay to do so. And maybe in the margin in parentheses, you can write the word yet. Don't tell people yet who I am. And the reason why I think Jesus says don't tell them yet who I am is because they don't fully understand even what that means. And so Peter says, yes, you're the Messiah. But what does that mean for Peter? You're the Christ, Christ Messiah, same word. Well, what does Peter, a good Jewish man of that time, think that means? Well, the Jewish people, what they thought that meant at that particular point in time is they would march themselves down to Jerusalem and they would overthrow Pontius Pilate or they would overthrow Herod, wherever he was set up in that particular region. And then if need be, they would march up to Rome and they would take over Caesar. And so on. that's what the Jews thought it meant with the Messiah. And we'll look at this next week when we come to it. The very next passage, Jesus is going to say to them, the Son of Man must suffer and die and be crucified and three days later rise again. And that's what does Peter say? May it never be. Don't talk like that. You see, Peter didn't fully understand even what he was saying when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so rather than Peter running out and proclaiming, we found the Messiah, and the people say, really? Where, should we get arms? Should we, you know, and misunderstanding everything, he says, don't tell anyone yet. And he would go in and have this crash course on what it would mean that he indeed was the Messiah. Now, I've, I've, uh, I've sort of did like on TV where they tell you what next week's episode is going to be. Uh, you have to come back next week to find out 
uh, what have stay tuned, right? Uh, so when we come together next time, we'll read it. If you're dying this week to know what's going to happen, finish reading Mark chapter 8. You should always be reading ahead anyway. I think a, this is something I did a long time ago before I was actually teaching and things like that. Uh, I would try to read the passage before I came to church and see if I could anticipate what the sermon would be about. I think it's just a good way to interact with the scripture, a little practical thing you could do. And then this way you could come tell me, boy, you blew that one. You know what I mean? There was so much you missed and all that kind of stuff. That's really fun to hear, you know, and I'm just kidding. All right, but a good way. So we'll get together next time. We'll consider that together here. But again, I leave you with that question. Who do you say that I am? And if Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, and you name the name of Christ, should you be playing around with sin? No, you shouldn't. Should you be living in hypocrisy? Should, be, should you be walking in unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred toward individuals and groups of people? Obviously not. If Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, that should impact every single area of your lives. And so this week, take some time and bring yourself before the Lord and just say, Lord, search me, know me, try me and see if there's any way of ungodliness that is within me and rooted out of me. And allow the Lord to do a good, sweet work in your heart. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your kindness, your mercy. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our lives. Both to bring us to Christ <coughs> and then to, be, to begin to be doing that work within us of conviction and of change and of a work within our lives. And Lord, we delight in that. And so, Lord, I pray your blessing on this congregation, Lord, over this next week. Lord, be real in our hearts and minister to us in the deep places, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>